0: Good evening. I invite you to stand this evening and let's worship our holy God. true God, one true King of the universe. Most importantly, we lay our lives at your feet this evening, too, as an offering, telling you that we love you. Teach us now, Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. May we be seated.
1: Well, if you would, open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 8 as we continue our study. I'm excited about all the things that God is doing and all the things that God has done. i got to brag on Tom and the worship team and and all the staff. Last week was just amazing to be able to come together last Wednesday and to celebrate communion. And then uh, if you missed Friday night, you missed a treat. We had about over 200 people and to see four churches come together, one of them singing in Spanish, was just amazing. Yeah, and it gave me this idea just on a small scale of what heaven would be like to be able to truly worship at the throne with all of these people of all of these times and just what that would be. And, and then Sunday was, was another amazing time. We had about 450 people come through between sunrise and, and the second service just doing some great things, and it was, it was awesome with that. And we have uh, three people that are going to get baptized coming this Sunday. So if you're watching online or you're here and you wanna you wanna get baptized, um, listening to the testimonies is really really cool, um, and and hopefully you'll be able to get to know these people, uh, Sunday, and and just hear what God's doing, just some, again some amazing things. I'd like to, um, before we get into our study, kind of give you an update on the Ukraine donations. I, I know we had some extra money come in on Sunday, but we had over $17,500 come in just from the donation. So we sent over 22000 we will be sending over $22,000 uh, to be able to go in to Ukraine. But I got an email from, um, or a Facebook post from a team that is going in, and it was five hours ago that they were getting ready to go. They had loaded up two vehicles plus two trailers loaded to the hilt with all kinds of stuff. And they're asking for prayer as they go in. There's a team of four. I'm not going to give you their names. Um, But they're going to be going into Ukraine and doing a turnaround trip. So they're going to go in, they're going to drop the stuff off, and then turn around and, and come back out. So can we pray for them real quick? Cover them in prayer? That'd be great. God, I thank you that we can come before you and we can lift up our brothers, and, and know, God, that you can set a, uh, your angels' charge over them, over the vehicle. Lord, we pray that mechanically everything would work. Lord, I pray that you would pave the way and open the doors and, and, and all the checkpoints and everything that they got to go through to get these resources into the hands of people that are in need. And most importantly, God, that uh, not only just these resources, but your love, that, that they would know that they are loved. And so, Lord, I pray for safety, I pray for divine appointments, asking God that you would give to them um, a great peace, and as uh, resources come in, may they, they distribute, that we would be conduits of blessing, partnering with our brothers and sisters across the globe to meet people's needs and to share the gospel. We thank you, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, tonight we're going to be turning the corner and, and to another topic that Paul is dealing with here in uh, 1 Corinthians 8 and 9. And one of the things that comes up is asking yourself the question, at what point in exercising your entitlement and your freedom become a problem for other people? And we all have personal freedoms and we all have entitlements and we all have rights. But at what point does exercising our entitlement and our personal freedoms, our preferences become a problem for somebody else. After all, we want what we want. We want to be comfortable. We want to be in that place. But should we be careful in exercising our freedom when it affects somebody else? When it brings a cost against somebody, even to the point of their faith? Paul is writing to the church at Corinth, a carnal church, that as we're going to see, because of pride, had gotten to this place of exercising a freedom based on the sense of entitlement. Entitlement is not something that we see in in the Scripture, but we do see it in our world, but it all comes about the same way. It all comes from this idea that I deserve this. Have you ever heard people say that? It's my right. I deserve it. Right? You owe me. And, And all of these things. And for the Christ follower... There's a real fine line that we have to walk within that. And I think by the end of our discussion tonight, we should be taking a look at how important is our freedoms in light of the well-being of others. What is it should we exercise in, in, in living out our personal freedoms and at what cost for the other person? And if we're exercising our freedoms, our personal freedoms at the cost of other people, what does that say about us? What does it say about our faith? What does it say about who we are as a Christ follower? So as Paul is introducing this next section in this letter, and again, he's responding to questions and concerns that the church of Corinth has already written to him within this. And there was a tension that existed in Corinth. And the tension, what was happening behind the tension was very specific there were people that were struggling in eating meat that was offered to idols. Now you've got these Jews and these Gentiles that are all kind of together. In the Jewish culture, you couldn't eat meat that was offered to idols. In the Gentile culture, they grew up eating meat to offered to idols. It was a good deal, you know. If if you wanted, you know, a, a really good steak, well, you know, a portion of it was offered to an idol, but it was discounted because you're not getting the whole thing. And with that, so it was a good deal, but for the Jews idolatry was was abhorrent and they grew up within that culture within them. And so a lot of the contention that was going on in the church is focused and it's coming out with one thing. There are times when we find that there is contention between people and it's pinpointed on one issue, but it's really not that issue. There's an emotion or an attitude that's behind the issue. And so Paul does a really good job of, of weeding that out and then giving us the example of of how to uh, to deal with this. He's going to, in fact, over the next few chapters, 8, 9, and, and 10, he's going to deal with this topic because it comes up in three different ways. One way is that they were struggling with eat, eating the food that was offered um, to idols in the temple area of the idol. So what was happening was... The the Gentile Corinthians were invited to these, these parties, these gatherings that was in the temple area of the idols, and they were going to the barbecue at the temple area of the idol. Well, they had always done that. It was a cultural thing. But the Christians, some of the Christians were looking at it going, should you really be doing that, going into that place? And so there was a tension that was there. And then later on in chapter 10, eating food that was purchased at the market that may or may not have been offered to idols. And then finally, going to somebody's house, where they prepare food for you, and that food may have been offered to idols. So you can see it's a real sticky point, because it deals with a person's faith and how they, how they engage with idolatry, or refuse to engage with idolatry. And in the Church of Corinth, and in, in, in that whole culture, idolatry was widely accepted. It wasn't prohibited at all. It was it was widely accepted. So becoming a a Christ follower for the for the Gentiles, for the, the Corinthians, they struggled with this. For the Jews, not so much because they already had drawn the line based on what God's word. And so we wrestle with today, even in our own lives, exercising our freedoms at the cost of Christian unity. At what point do we do we say, well, you know, my freedom to do this is more important than how you care about it? Or how I care about you within that. Paul, as we'll cover uh, next week in 1 Corinthians 10.23, he says this, "...all things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify." Edify. What does that mean? To build up. Why do we exist? What's the purpose of ministry? What is the purpose of the church? Why do we as Christ followers exist on this earth and what is our purpose within that ministry? And Paul's going to unpack that very clearly in these passages as we take a look at them. We may be free in Christ, but we should never exploit our freedom at the cost of others, nor should we exploit our freedom so that in that freedom, whatever we're doing, becomes a master of us. For example, a clear one would be drinking. A lot of people argue, can a Christian have a drink? Can a Christian drink? Well, there's a lot of debate within the church, and there's a lot of offense that comes into that, and some Christians will exercise that freedom, and others will be offended by that and and such things. And so we need to understand that there is relevance for this today, whether a Christian is to drink, whether a Christian is to watch a certain rating of a movie or go to a certain place or all of these things please don't get lost in the weeds. We need to look at what the heart behind it is and what the attitude, because that's what Paul addresses within this. And to be able to do this, one of the things that Paul does do is he does draw a line in actual participating in idolatry and sexual immorality. He will draw a line and say, you cannot be a Christ follower and an idolater. You can't be a Christ follower and a fornicator or someone that is sexual. You cannot be. There is a line there within these things. But there are some grays that people struggle with. And so Paul addresses this. What is the goal? What is the goal? Often when I was teaching youth ministry... We would talk about things like this, and I would say, you know, a lot of people want to know where that line is. Why do they want to know where the line is? To see how close I can get to that line and not cross over. Is that the way we should live? How close? Am I close? I, I, oh, man, I, I want to, you know, I, no. We shouldn't see how close we can get to the line before we cross over. We should go the opposite way within that. So let's dive right into it. Chapter 8's got 13 verses. Chapter 9's got, I think, 27 or such. So we'll, we'll take a look at this. He starts out in chapter 8. He says, Now concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he is not yet known as he ought to know. For if anyone loves God, he is known by him. And so he starts out with the first thing. And he, he lines up this contrast. What's the contrast? When you look at this, what do you see as the contrast? Well, he starts out, now concerning, so that tells us it's a change. Now concerning what? The things sacrificed to idols. Well, here's our topic. The things sacrificed to idols. The things that they're struggling with. As I said, the, the, the meat idols, the meat that was being offered to idols, and within that. But what really is the problem? Now concerning the thing. Notice how Paul goes right into the emotion. The contrast between knowledge and love. Knowledge puffs up. It it elevates the person in arrogance. I love how Paul goes after the church of Corinth in the Grecian culture because they were all about wisdom and they thought in their mind, I can have great wisdom, therefore wisdom equals Holiness. Well you could be the smartest person in in the room. But if you have not love. Are you doing anybody any good? No. And so within this. He says this. We all have knowledge. But knowledge makes arrogant. But love edifies. The problem with. The Church of Corinth is, they felt that they were intellectually superior. I know the scriptures. I can exegete the passages. I've got my theology sound. And this is my theology, and this is the way that it goes. And I've got really good theology. I went to seminary. I'm, I'm sorry, seminary. You can have the degree and you can have all of these things, but if you don't execute your theology from the position of love, you've puffed yourself up and you're full of
0: pride
1: and arrogance within this. You present yourself as being intellectually superior than others, more mature, if you will, of the faith. I am more mature because I know more about the Bible. Yeah, but where's love? Because knowledge puffs up. I can tell you this, God can care less how many letters you have behind your name or how many degrees you have hanging on your wall. What he cares about is how well you love. Because it's love that builds up. It's the love for the other. What had happened was the Corinthians had studied the scriptures and studied the word and they thought themselves to be more spiritual because they were able to handle these marginal things. I got it licked, I know. Whereas the Jews who were coming out of a culture that was taught to abhor idolatry was offended by their behavior and they weren't building up and so there was a lack of unity that was within this. Also the same would be true for the younger believers who just didn't understand the freedoms that Scripture gives us or those things that are morally neutral. Now mind you, we're not talking about sin. We're talking about the attitude that seems to give people the freedom to be able to do whatever they want, regardless of how it affects the other person. And so within this, notice how he says we, that we in verse 1, is a, it's called an inclusive we, meaning everybody in the room. We all have knowledge. We all possess a knowledge. We all know what sin is. We know what the scriptures say. We all come from the same basic fact. And he's talking to believers. We all come from the same knowledge of knowing what sin is. And we all know God. And we all know that idols are nothing. We all know that. But here's the hang-up. Even though this idol is nothing and it has no power, it brings this cultural issue in that I just cannot accept. I can't tolerate it creates a stumbling block for me and the problem is they would get into this place where they would argue and so the jews would say we can we can't eat meat that's offered to idols because if we eat the meat that's offered to idols it's the same thing as if we're going and we're practicing idolatry and we're watching you and in this case we're watching you go do it in the temple of the Isles, we have a local uh, local place called Johnny's, and Johnny's makes a really good burger. They make a really
0: good burger,
1: and uh, years ago, for the fire department, we do a drill, and they'd go get you know Johnny's burgers, and they buy like I don't know fifty of them, and they bring them in, and they were really good. I always wanted to go get a Johnny's burger. But what would it look like if Pastor Kerry's rig was outside of Johnny's? Not so good. So I choose not to go into Johnny's, even though the burger's good. Because even though I have the freedom to do it, to go into that place, it gives this perception that could cause somebody to stumble, that would cause somebody to fall, to cause somebody to, to think inappropriately or have an issue. Even longer ago, when I was living in Southern California, I lived in Huntington Beach, and I, and I did ministry in Whittier, and it was about a 35-40 minute drive in between. So I wasn't ministering in the same place that I was working, but I was serving with Harvest Crusades, and I was doing uh, outreach and all these different things, and I was outside one day watering my yard, and, and I had an O'Doul's. Now an O'Doul's is a non-alcoholic beer. I like to taste the beer. So I was out there watering the yard and, and doing that and, and all this. And I had a Harvest Crusade, and it was just the time for the Harvest Rally. And the Harvest Crusades back in, in California are a big deal. They get like anywhere between fifty to 60,000 people a night. I'm out there, and I got a Harvest Crusade shirt on, and I'm watering my yard. And this guy comes by, and he goes, Harvest Crusade! I was there last night, and I just got saved. I accepted Jesus. And just as he said that, he looked down... And saw the odules in my hand, and it, you could see, like, the blood drain out of his face, the countenance fall. And he just didn't say another word and walked away. And I thought, oh, boy, did I blow it! Boy, did I blow it! That would be like those that would exercise their freedom and go into the temple of the idol and are eating at a party or a meal, and other people are coming by going,
0: ah, that
1: doesn't work. And being stumbled by that. And you have to ask yourself the question, was it really worth it to cause an offense? Paul says in verse 2, if anyone supposes that he knows anything... He has not yet known as he ought to know. That sounds like a word puzzle. It really isn't. If you think you know it all, you don't. You know, you think about within this, he says, if anyone thinks he knows it all or he's all wise, that's pride and arrogance. But the proud and the arrogant can't hear teaching. Can you teach a know-it-all? No. Because they know it all within this. And the reality is, these people in Corinth thought that they knew it all, but they were not teachable. And when you get to that place of not being teachable, then you start thinking about yourself in full of pride. We don't know it all. We're instructed by the Holy Spirit daily. And if you're not learning via the Holy Spirit daily, you better check yourself. You know, I, in, in light of this, I, I thought, well, you know, we're, we're mature adults in this room. Most of us, and and I often think, you know, we got it pretty together, don't we? Until you talk to a teenager that tells you you really don't know anything. Have you ever had a conversation with a teenager? Because if you ever think you got it figured out, they will let you know you don't, and they want to tell you. Pride. But in contrast, Paul says. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. You don't know the level of love that you need to operate in. Because in verse 3 he says, But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. This love that builds up. Paul doesn't separate knowledge from love. Because if you take knowledge out of love, what do you have? Just an emotion. Right? Feelings drive you. And that's not right. So, so we need to start, though, with the basis of love. And then we need to apply wisdom or knowledge in order to know how that love should be applicable to the situations. Where does the source of love come from? Not a trick question. Where does it come from? God. Where does the source of good wisdom, right wisdom, come from? Come comes from God also, via the Holy Spirit, Right? But what is the first thing that you learn when you're saved? God loves you. And then you learn wisdom. And then you learn how it should apply. And the Holy Spirit will give that spiritual wisdom to you. The problem is, is if we start with self-love, which is what the pride is about, we love ourselves more than God and our, our relationship with God goes off. What happened to the church of Corinth? They started loving themselves. What is a person that is all about entitlement or self-right? What are they all about? They're all about themselves and what they want and the way that they want it. And so Paul, in this, he says, but anyone loves, he is known by God. And we know God. One of the things that we got to understand is, and they all would agree, is that there is only one God. The foundation of faith is based on one God. And they would all believe in Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. The Shema says this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with what? All your might. Do you see wisdom anywhere in there? No, because the foundation is love. Love is what connects us to God. It's that vertical relationship within that. And so within this, we've got to understand that that the correction of our bad behavior and our pride is to love others more than ourselves. And so within this, Paul is checking them and saying, look, you've got to take care of how you exercise your freedoms, because if you're exercising your freedoms at the cost of somebody else, you're not really loving them within that. He goes on to verses 4 and 6, and, and so now he's going to logically take away their, their idea um, and, and bring him to a place of really what ministry is all about. He goes in and he says, Therefore, concerning the eating of things... So he goes back to verse 1. Therefore, concerning the eating of these things, sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world and that there is no God but one, the Shema. For even if there are so-called gods they're in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, in other words, all of these false gods, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom we all things, and we exist for him, one Lord Jesus, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. So in verses 4 through 6, Paul says, look at where do we start? We start with unity. One God, one faith, one Lord. And it and is all based on that love relationship. There was a lot of idols in, the, in that time, but you think about, how do idols get their power? Can an idol have power? In itself, it can. So how does an idol get power? It's what you give to it, right? What, what you align to it. What you empower it with. And, and that is you that's doing it. So if we separate ourselves from these things and we, and we all agree there is one God, that's where we start. One God, one Lord. Okay. We're all on the same page. And with this, then he says in verses 5 and 6, For there are so-called gods, there are, indeed there are many, yet for us, for us, Christ followers, there is but one, note, from whom are all things, and we exist, what? For him. Now, that might be revolutionary. You don't exist for you. You exist for God. I don't exist for my personal pleasure. I exist to glorify God in all that I say and do. Can we all agree on that? Yes, we should. Because that's the foundation of love, to to understand that God loves us and we exist for Him and for His good pleasure. And the second thing that we have to agree on, that Jesus is Lord. Now, if you you say, yes, Jesus is Lord, and I say, Jesus is Lord, can can we have this relationship? Sure we can, because we have a unified faith. We have one Lord, one Savior, that is in this relationship. Furthermore, when he talks in in this, all the way in, he says, we exist for him, one Lord, whom all things, and we exist through him. Okay? Okay? We all serve the same God. We all have one Lord. And we all exist according to His playbook, for His purpose. Can we all agree on that? Absolutely. Okay, now we can have unity within the church. Now we can move forward. We need to understand that within this, as, as a new creation in Christ, Jesus is Lord over everything, all things. Okay? One God, one faith, one Lord, and Jesus is Lord over all things. Is Jesus Lord over all of creation? Shake your head, yes. He is. Is he Lord over all the animals that we would kill and eat? Yes. Cows and pigs, right? We can have it all. He's Lord over it all. And so within this, if Jesus is taking something that we thought was unclean and makes it clean, if Jesus says it's clean, one God, one Lord, and he declares it is clean, is it okay to eat it? Yes. Absolutely. How do we know that? Because he did it with Peter. And it wasn't so much about the animals, but it was Peter's issue with going to a Gentile's house with Cornelius. In Acts chapter 10, verses 13 to 15, and I love this. This is, this is a hunter's dream. Do you know that it's in the Bible to, that we can go hunting? It's here. Acts chapter 10, 13 to 15. A voice came to him and said, Get up, Peter. Kill and eat. There you go. Peter said, But no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unholy and unclean. And again, a voice came to him a second time. What God has cleansed, no longer consider unholy. What had happened? Well, he was at Simon the Tanner's house, which really wasn't a good place for him to be anyway, so he kind of messed that one up to begin with. But then this sheet comes down with all these unclean animals in this dream, and Peter says, no, I'm not going to do this. Why? Because they're ceremonially unclean. God says, well, go ahead and kill and eat it. Was it about the animals? No. It was about his attitude in going into a Gentile's house and witnessing. And, and, And God was checking him. He says, what I've made clean, don't declare unclean. Don't let your religiosity stop you from fulfilling the gospel mission. In Christ, Jesus establishes new realities within that. And we've got to understand that that God will take us beyond our comfort zone, and that's okay. But we've got to make sure that our conscience is clear when we go. And if your conscience is not clear in doing that, then you shouldn't do it. Within the context of that. He goes on in verses 7 to 13. and really reveals that not everybody sees everything the same way. Can we disagree on on some things? Sure you can. There are some non-essentials that we can disagree on uh, within that. Because people see things differently. Notice what he says here in verses 7 to 13. He says, however... Not all men have this knowledge, but some being accustomed to the idol until now, talking about people that grew up in idolatry, going into the temples and eating at these festivals, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled and they can't do it. And and so that would be the other side of the Jews that say they can't do it. But the food will not uh, commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat it, nor the better if we do eat it. But take care that this liberty, notice what he says, it's not the food, it's the liberty, that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you who have knowledge, dining in, note, an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he's weak, be strengthened to eat the sacrifice to idols? For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined, the brother for whose sake Christ died. And so by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. So what is this illustration? The illustration that Paul gives is the one that I mentioned earlier. So you got a guy that's eating in the temple. you got another guy who is, is young in his faith, weak or immature in his faith. And he sees the guy eating in the temple, but his conscience says, I can't do that. But I see this mature Christian that is doing it. So I go in and I do it and I sin against my conscience. Because I'm following the example of somebody who I see as being mature. But by following that example, I'm sinning against my own conscience. So what did the stronger brother do? He set up a scenario to cause the weaker brother to fall into sin. And that's the concept behind stumbling. Creating a situation where you cause somebody. It's not just the look. It's where you bring them to a place where they are following you. You can see to step over that, but they can't and they stumble in following after you. It's not a mere perception, but it's an action that takes place. And so Paul says this, not everybody has this knowledge that idols are nothing and God is everything. And and so within this, that these idols should be considered powerless. Not everybody has that, that construct and so they struggle with this. But for the Jew who is living there, if he knowingly sins against his conscience, that's a problem, isn't it? That would be the scenario where where you are now responsible. And what Paul says, it's as if you were sinning against Christ himself. The difficulty is, there are some people that grew up doing something that is a cultural norm. And they're okay with that. There are others that say, no, I can't do that. But if I'm really going to fit in, I need to follow after them. But all along, their conscience is, is having an issue. The problem is, the stronger brother then comes in and says, hey, it's okay It's okay for you to do that. Guess what? It's not my call. It's not the Stronger Brothers call. They should actually step back and, and not try to draw that person into a place where their conscience is, is convicting them. But everybody's going to have a different perspective on how they can worship. There are those that believe that in order to go to church, you need to wear a suit, and you need to wear a tie, and you need to do all of these things because that is what is, is considered acceptable. And there are others that say, well, you know, I can wear whatever I want. Shorts, barefoot, I'm okay with that. Is it okay for those two perceptions to exist in the same place? Yes. Yes. Is it wrong, though, for the person who has the freedom to wear shorts and barefoot to go to the person that's wearing the suit and say, look at, you're spiritually immature because if you were really mature, you'd dress like me. Would that be inappropriate? Yes. Absolutely. Because you take your conviction and you force it onto somebody else's conviction that causes them to sin against them. Their, their own conscience within that. And so we should celebrate... Our difference is we should make central the central things, the things that, that, that are non-negotiable. One God, one faith, Jesus, empowered by the Holy Spirit. Those are non-negotiables. Does God really care what you wear to church? Nope. What does he care about? Your heart. Does God really care what music is being played? Nope. What does he care about? Your heart. The heart of worship. And so you need to make sure that that you're not that other person that is or appears to be knowledgeable, that exercises your, your knowledge at the cost of pride because, as Paul would say in verse 12, when you do that, when you hurt somebody, you're really hurting Jesus. When you're creating a scenario that is causing offense for somebody... By you exercising your right or entitlement within that. That structure that is there. You're actually hurting Christ. Jesus died for that person. And we should never belittle somebody. Put somebody down. Put them in a place that they're uncomfortable. We should have that conversation and lift them up and build them up. I do a lot of funerals. And I always have a conversation with them, especially when I don't know them. When I come and do the service, how would you like for me to dress? Do you want me to wear a suit? Or do you want casual? I have my preference, but guess what? It's not about me, is it? It's about how to honor that individual. So we look at that, and that's how we should, we should handle this. We should, we should handle our freedom... As something that that we may have that freedom in, but we should never exercise our freedom at the cost of hurting somebody else. And if you know that it is going to offend somebody, don't do it. Don't draw them in within that, in the, in, within that situation, within that, because to pridefully say I have the right to do this is unloving. Paul goes on to model it, to show us what ministry really does look like in chapter 9. He says this, he says, and and he uses these four questions in dealing with his rights. Uh, Verses 1 through 11, he says, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? And if to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord, my defense to those who examine me in this. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas, which is Peter, or do only Barnabas and I not have the right to refrain from working? Or who at times has served as a soldier in his own expense, or who plants a vineyard and? does not eat the fruit of it, or who does not tend the flock, does not use the milk of the flock. I'm not speaking these things according to human judgment, am I? Or does not the law also say these things? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox while he's threshing. God is not concerned about the oxen, is he? Or is he speaking altogether for your sake, our sake? Yes, for our sake. It is written because the plowman ought to plow in hope, and the thresher... To thresh in hope of sharing the crops. And if we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? One of the things that was being put into check was the church at Corinth had got to this place where they really didn't like Paul anymore. They were kind of pushing back, he was the father of the church, but you know, we, we're doing our own thing. And so they were challenging him in his apostolic authority. In his apostolic authority, they were saying, well, you know, we really don't want to support you and all of these other things. And he planted the church. And they were exercising their freedom and saying, well, we've got it wired, Paul. We really don't need you. He says, really? And he asked these four rhetorical questions in in light of the apostleship and, and how they were treating their teachers. Because it was as if they didn't want teachers anymore. Have you ever met somebody that thought that they knew it all and they didn't need to be taught anymore? Why didn't they want the teacher? Because the teacher was challenging them in their thinking. So Paul says, look it. Am I not free? And the answer is, yeah. He's a freeman, not a slave. Am I not an apostle? Yeah, he's an apostle. He holds the office of apostle. And back then, the office of apostle was very high up. Well regarded. Because the apostles then were sent by Jesus. Am I not an eyewitness of Jesus? The answer is yes. Everything I got, I got directly from him to you. And are you not my work in the Lord? And the answer is yes. You, church of Corinth, wouldn't be here unless I planted the church here. So you need to listen within this. They were challenging Paul's credentials to be, even be the teacher. They were, and Paul was exercising authority over them. And again, going back to the, the teenager, the rebellious teenager, when they get to the place where they think, well, you can't tell me this anymore. And it's like, well, wait a minute, I'm your parent. Yeah, but you don't know everything. And, and you have that conversation with them, and they get to this know-it-all stage. You say, well, wait a minute, let's reestablish authority within this. And Paul was exercising authority and chastising the church. And, and, you know, sometimes we got to understand, and it's almost, I was thinking about this, how, how do you illustrate this? Have you ever had your kids where, you know, they come up to you and you're trying to challenge them, you're trying to correct them, and they say, well, Johnny's mom doesn't make him do this. You know what the great answer is? I'm not Johnny's mom. I'm your mom. I don't, I don't deal with Johnny, but I'm dealing with you. And that's what Paul's saying. There are some people that reject his authority, and Paul really doesn't care if somebody outside of the church rejects his authority. What he cares about is his spiritual children. How can I correct you? How can I bring you back to a place of unity and get rid of some of the strife and deal with this this behavior that's not correct? The church was his spiritual heritage. and And within this... Paul defends his rights, verses 3 through 6. He says, my defense to those who examine me. So, you're saying I'm not, I don't have the right to do this. Well, let's talk about basic human rights. Do I, do I have the right to eat? Do I have the right to get married? Sure. Do I have the right to be provided for by the people that I am serving? Yes. Does Paul really care about these rights? No, but what he does care about, the fact is that they are judging him as not being worthy of being acknowledged within this. They were challenging Paul and they were saying, Paul, you know, you're really, eh, you're just not really our teacher anymore. We don't need to support you anymore. We don't we don't want to listen to you. I got to thinking about this. This could be very, very disheartening for Paul who was the pastor, wouldn't it? As a parent, have you ever had your kids tell you that, well, you, you, I just don't want to listen to you anymore? And you're like, it's like a dagger to the heart within this. And, or this, as a parent, have you ever had your kids treat you as less of a person? Your job, mom or dad, is to serve me. To give me what I want, when I want, the way I want it. Now, I know that may never happen in your home. But in the average home, it does happen. It happened in my house, within this. The Church of Corinth stopped seeing Paul as a spiritual father and as a person. And he says, wait a minute. We serve the same God, the same Lord. We have the same foundation. You're here because I poured my love out to you. And you're treating me less than? Why? Because you think you know it all let's talk about this. do I have those rights and the answer is absolutely yes, I have all of those rights within this as a servant to have these basic human needs because I am a person, but he goes on and he uses an illustration if a soldier was to go out to war, does a soldier pay his own way? No if a farmer plants a vineyard does he need take the fruit of the 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 field, yeah, he does, and and the flock. But verse 8, he clarifies, I am not speaking these things according to human judgment, am I? Doesn't the law say these things? It's common sense. And then he quotes Deuteronomy 25, 4. You shall not muzzle the ox while it's threshing. In other words, don't put a muzzle on the ox while he's working. Let him eat from this. Why? Because it is the basic element of human love, showing respect for one another. And those that are in ministry. This payment and provision that is there. That even animals have the right to benefit these things. And here's where Paul goes. Paul is so smart. Because he argues from the lesser to the greater point. If this is true, that you would show a basic element of love and consideration for These basic rights. How much more should you be loving and considerate towards one another? As opposed to your own entitlement and what's best for you. To seek to serve others. Paul lays this out not because he's looking to raise money. He's not looking to be able to do this. But he's laying out an argument. What's his argument? His argument... We find as, as he goes on, he says, I'm not speaking these things, verse 8, in judgment or the law. And he talks about the ox, verse 10. Or is he speaking altogether for our sake? Yes, for our sake. It's written because the plowman ought to plow in hope. And if we sow, we sow these spiritual things. Verse 12. And if others shared the right over, don't we have that much more? Nevertheless, verse 12, we did not use this right, but we endured all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ huge what does paul say he says you thought you had the right to be able to eat meat the way you wanted to according to the adults and you had the right to be able to stumble people and exercise your christian liberty any way you wanted to and you had the right to be able to do that because you really don't care about other people not even basic human rights i have the basic human rights and you want to cast it off of me. i have the right for these things I have the right for you to support me in ministry or to provide for me or these other things. This would be a basic human right. And they would have to say yes. But then Paul does this and he says, Nevertheless, I never exercised those rights so that the gospel would be unhindered. Wow. I never exercised those rights so that it wouldn't be a problem for you even though you can do it, doesn't mean that you should do it. Even though you might have the right or the privilege to do it, doesn't mean it's the best thing. In fact, you should go the opposite way. And give up your rights for the gospel's sake. And that's what he says he does in verse 12. Nevertheless, we did not use this right, any of these rights, but we endured all things, Purpose clause, so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who perform sacred services eat the food of the temple and those who attend regularly at the altar have their share at the altar? So also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. In other words, don't you know even historically the priests would eat from the temple? And Jesus himself said that those that proclaim the gospel will make their living from the gospel. Matthew 10.10 says this, A bag for your journey, and even two coats or sandals, there a staff. for the worker is worthy of his support. Luke 10.7 Stay in the house, eating and drinking what they will give you, for the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not keep moving from house to house. In other words, when you go out of ministry and people provide for you, while you're out doing ministry and mission, accept it, because you're worthy of it. Because you're doing that work within that. Paul's point of ministry is in others-centered ministry. And in his others-centered ministry, he would even restrict his own rights so that there was no way he could, he could put a hindrance on the gospel. He wouldn't exercise his own rights to make sure that there was no way that anybody would ever be saying, Well, Paul, you're just in it for the money. One of the lessons that you have to learn, if you're ever going to be in ministry, oh by the way you are, is ministry is not about you, it's about the other. Service is about you, or service is about the other, not about you. You, you haven't come to, to be served but to serve and, and as Jesus says, give his life for many. It doesn't matter if it's children's ministry, usher's ministry, nursery ministry, or professional pastoral ministry. Ministry is not a job. If you want a job, go get, go to Walmart. Ministry is a lifestyle. and It is a constant putting the other first. It is a self-sacrifice. Ministry will cost you. It will cost you time. It will cost you energy. It will cost you resources. Why? Because you want to see the other come to faith. You want to see the other grow. You want to see the other build up. And what does it look like? Well, it looks like taking time out to give a guy who sleeps out on the street a ride to go catch a bus. What does it look like? It looks like sitting down and having a cup of coffee with somebody who's all by themselves. Or visiting the widow that hasn't been out because she's scared of getting COVID. Taking that time. It's about the other and it is a self-sacrifice. Paul had the right to receive provision But he would intentionally not exercise that right to make sure that the gospel was free to all. In fact, in verses 15 to 18, he says this, But I have used none of these things. I have used none of these things, and I am not writing these things so that it will be done so in my case. For it would be better for me to die than have any man make my boast an empty one. For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I am under compulsion. For woe is me if I don't preach the gospel. For if I do this voluntarily, I have a reward. But if against my will I have a stewardship entrusted me, what then is my reward? That when I preach the gospel, I may offer the gospel without charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. One of the things that we intentionally do here, is we provide funeral services for free for the community. That we could boast about it? Absolutely not. We should never boast about that. But on people's worst day, we should love them. And it has been effective because we share the gospel with many, many, many people within that. And we keep the gospel free. We are, we are not creating a scenario where somebody is obligated to pay for the gospel or to get paid or to, to, to make a killing on it within this. And Paul was compelled by the Spirit to preach the gospel, to do it voluntarily. Now, does that mean that, that everybody should say, okay, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to live a monastic lifestyle. I'm going to live a life of poverty for the sake of the gospel. That's not necessarily the case. As I said earlier, you've got to go based off of your convictions. And the worker is there. But in Paul's case, as an evangelist, he chose that. That was his decision. But understanding this, that it's a stewardship. Paul saw that the stewardship was entrusted to him. My question to you tonight is this. What has God made you a steward of? What is the gospel ministry, the gifts, the talents, the abilities, the time, the energy, that God has given to you and says, this is your responsibility Use it for the kingdom's glory. Use it for the gospel. And how are you doing? We need to understand that it is not about our rights or our entitlements. It's about the other. And it's about how to love the other well. If I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I am under compulsion. I want to remind you, church... It is not our gospel. It's the gospel of Jesus. We save no one. We share the message of salvation that saved us. And that's what we give out. Paul saw himself as a servant. As he ends, as we come to an end of this, he says this in verse 19. For though I am free from all men, I've made myself a slave to all so that I may win the more. To the Jews I became as a Jew so that I might win the Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, though not to be myself under the law, so that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without the law as without the law, though not to be without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who are without the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. And I have become all thanks to all men, so that I might by all means save some. Wow. What does Paul mean? He's a hypocrite. Is that what he's saying? No. Paul was a Jew. He was a Pharisee above Pharisees. He was in his heritage under the law. So what did he do? He gave up all of his personal rights and put himself in a position to be a servant of God wherever he was. And to the Jews, then he would practice in a manner that was that was like the Jews. To those that were non-Jews, without violating the law, he would eat meat because it wasn't a problem for him. To the weak, he would, he would exercise humility within this. In fact, he became like Jesus. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8 says this, Have this mind in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the bondservant, and be made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. How did Jesus present himself to you and I? A human, just like us. Did his nature or character change? Was he still divine? Yes. Did he sin? No. But he became relevant to mankind in adding to himself humanity, being in that place where he was approachable, and in mark 1045 and I alluded to it earlier, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Ministry is going to require missional thinking. Hudson Taylor, in order to be an evangelist to China. do you know what he did? Hudson Taylor? Hudson Taylor, in order to become an evangelist of China, you know what he became? A Chinaman. He would dress, wear his hair, do everything accordingly within that. Why? To be able to convey the gospel message in a manner that was appropriate to the Chinese. And so he, he lived his life that way. To the Jew, Paul lived under the law. To the Gentile, he lived outside of the legalists. To the weaker brother... He, he, he acquiesced to those that needed to be taught easily. That word weaker there literally means to the unlearned. And so what did he do? He didn't talk high theology. He put the cookies on the bottom shelf. Why? So that I might save some and share the gospel with many. What was Paul's goal? Excellence. Excellence. He ends with this sports analogy I think Paul really liked the the games. He says this, "Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. But then do it to receive a, they do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore I run in such a way as not to Without aim. I box in such a way as not to be beating in the air, but I discipline my body and making it a slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself may not be disqualified. Four things that he says in this last part. He says, run the race well. You're in a race, it's a marathon. This Christian journey is a marathon. But when you enter a race, you just don't enter a race and you say, oh, yeah, I'm just in the race. No. You run the race to win. You want to be first. You want to, you want to go first and be excellent within this. He is in mind the Isthmian games that were held every other year in Corinth. He was speaking a language they would have understood, and the runners that would run then, they would run naked. Now that's a mental picture you don't want to have. Why would they run naked? So that there was nothing entangling them. There was nothing that would slow them down because they wanted to win. Why did they want to win? Because they want to be awarded the wreath that says you're the winner. You don't get in the race just to say you get in the race. People run today just for fun and they dress all funny with like tutus and all these different goofy things. These were athletes. These are Olympians. Spend their life preparing for this. Paul says, this is, my, this is the way that I want to be. I want to, I want to run to, to win within this. I want to cast off these things that easily entangle us. And, and so within this, what do you do? Well, you have to exercise self-control. Not only are you running this race and running well, but you want to run for a reward. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says this, For we must all appear before the judgment seat. And that word judgment there is Bema. Bema seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Another reward. Do you realize that you're going to have to stand before Jesus and give an account for your life here? And you're like, I thought all my sins were... Yeah. But he has a reward for you. This crown, this victor's crown saying you did well. What I want to hear when I get to heaven, well done, good and faithful servant, enter in. What I don't want to hear which scares me, yeah, you made it in just by the skin of your teeth. At the Bema judgment, I want to be able to have rewards given to me. Why? Because in Revelation 4 and 5, those very rewards are going to be cast before the throne of God. I want to have something to, to give back as an offering. Not for my own pride, but I have something to show that says, yes, Lord, I did this for you this victor's crown we need to run with purpose he uses the illustration of a boxer what would you think of a boxer that got into a ring and went up against his opponent but instead of hitting his opponent he just walked around the ring and swung in the air you say that guy got hit in the head a few times too many no you want to be on target paul's ministry was on target what was his target the gospel message how do you get there? You discipline yourself. Notice he says in verse 27, but I discipline my body and make it my slave. In other words, an athlete is going to deny himself rights and privileges in order to be the best that they could be. So at the end, when he stands before that that judgment seat, he's got to be able to stand in honor. And he says, okay, yeah, this is for you. We need to be able to get to that place where we say, you know, I could do this, but it's not the best thing. I'm exercising my freedoms at the cost of unity and hurting other people. Why? Because I'm making it all about me. It's not all about you. It's not all about me. It's all about Jesus. And it's all about the other. And when you're serving the other, you're really serving Jesus. When you dishonor the other, you're really dishonoring Jesus. I'll leave you with this quote. I've shared uh, shared it with you a lot. Warren Wiersbe said it. Ministry takes place when divine resources meet human needs through loving channels for the glory of God. Whether you're in this room or watching online, you're all ministers. You're all evangelists. People are watching. The body is leaning in. How are you serving? We've been praying for revival and I think we are on the threshold of revival. Why? Because this world is going to hell in a handbasket. And people need to know that they are loved. Does it mean that you don't get the pretty pony? Yeah, it's okay. You don't need the pretty pony. Why? Because people need Jesus. So let's give them Jesus. Let's love on them. Let's share that love and let's serve one another. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you've given to us this hope and this future. That you've given to us the power to be able to to honor you with our lives and to be able to share this gospel message that changes lives. God, I would pray for us as a group that we would understand this and embrace that, that ministry that you have for us, whatever the context of that ministry is whether it's in work or, or in a classroom or at a home or in a business, whatever, whatever the case is, in church or on the streets, Lord, I pray that we would bring to people the gospel message. It's not about personal gratification. It's about you, Lord Jesus. And when we realize that our lives are, are all about you, It's in that place we will find satisfaction. We won't find satisfaction in this world. But we will in you, Lord Jesus, because you are more than enough. And you will satisfy the the soul. As we close out tonight and we sing this song, may we realize that you are enough. May we declare it as our creed. We thank you. In Jesus' name. Amen.
0: Is my reward all of my devotion? Now there's nothing in this world that can ever satisfy. Through every trial, my soul will sing no turning did set free. And this hope will never fail. Heaven is our home. Through every storm, my soul as our benediction tonight. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. The cross before me, the world behind said amen praise jesus have a great weekend we'll see you on sunday
1: thanks for joining us in the study of god's word with pastor carrie wacker we'd love to have you join us in person for worship each sunday morning at 9 a.m or 10 45 a.m we also meet wednesday nights at 6 30 p.m